Well, good morning again. How are we doing? So listen, how many of you are dads? Dads, raise your hand. How many of you are dads with children, say, over eight years of age? Okay. And how many of you have ever said a joke that your kids have said something to this effect? Really, dad? They're called dad jokes, right? Well, you know, it's a funny thing how life happens. All my life, Scott, Pastor Scott, who's my oldest son, and Josh, who is my next oldest, our next oldest, um, they always used to mock me about dad jokes. Dad, your sense of humor is so bad. You know what I'm right, right? So get this. Pastor Scott has become a dad. And at least three times a week, he sent, we have this um, um, message, iMessage, uh, whatever it's called, what, I can't remember. And um, he, we have this fam jam of all of our family, and he sends to the family these ridiculous dad jokes, at least three times a week. How my, how the tables have turned. <laughs> but here are some for this week. I dig, you dig. He digs, she digs, we dig, they dig. It's not a long poem, but it's deep. That's right. Ah, it's a boo. So this is, um, this one's for you, Pastor Derek. I just started a business where we specialize in weighing tiny objects. It's a small-scale operation. <laughs> You're supposed to groan. Oh. Next one. Uh. Okay, you ready? Here's, here's the best one, my favorite. What do you call, and I apologize to all Irishmen and women in the room and watching online. What do you call an Irishman who is bulletproof? Wait for it. Rick O'Shea. There's what I'm after, the ah. Come on, let's stand together, and if you're visiting with us today, we're delighted you're here. We are in chapter 20 of the story, and we only got like uh, 10, 11, 12 more to go. Um, and uh, so we're looking at the book of Esther. We're going to read Esther chapter 2, verses 1 to uh, 18, and it's sort of a, an abridged version. I've kind of taken out some... Uh, um, pieces, and you'll see that. Uh, and we're going to refer to uh, ex, uh, Esther chapter 1 and chapter 2 during the sermon. So this is what uh, I'm reading the uh, blue, and you're reading the white. So this is what it says. Later when King Xerxes, isn't that a great name, Xerxes? His son was called Artaxerxes. Later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what um, what he had decreed about her, then the king's personal attendants proposed. Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, who had been, or had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive by Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. 
This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Don't you like the graphicness of the Bible? And when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Suz and put under the care of Hegai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Got a little carried away there. Esther had not revealed her nationality. This is important. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. And every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any any other woman. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And king gave her great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Well done. Way to read today. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for your love and the exhibition of it that is so generous and gracious in Jesus Christ. And for the work and power of the Spirit that takes everything that you've done in the victory in Jesus and make it possible, available, applicable to our lives. And so, Lord, we ask now for the help of the same Holy Spirit, Lord, to have a voice to speak, ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to comprehend. And Lord, as we leave this place and go into our lives, our families, our marriages, relationships, school, work, recreation, services where we get them, that you would help us by the same Holy Spirit to live out what it means to be the people of God, to be Christians, to be Christ followers, to be disciples, to live it out and to show it. Lord, in physical, tangible, and meaningful ways, in Christ's name we pray, amen. Why don't you be seated? If Esther's story teaches us anything, it teaches us this, that who we are and where we are is not a coincidence. And also that sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Esther's story would make a great Charles Dickens novel. Like the great expectations are Oliver Twist. Please, sir, I want some more. Esther is an orphan in a strange country. She has become somewhat of a folk hero to her people, to the Jewish people, but she manages to maintain her integrity while rising to a position of influence where she will help avert a genocide and annihilation of Israel's family nation. 
There's also this man by the name of Mordecai who has an unusual name. Now, Mordecai is not a name that you hear very often these days. I mean, young families, young parents don't exactly call their sons, their new sons, Mordecai. Anybody in the room know a Mordecai? I know one. Mordecai, I don't know, I know of one. Mordecai Ham was the preacher that Billy Graham came to faith under. That's my thing. Now, but what makes Mordecai's name unusual is not that it is somewhat unique or different or maybe even strange. What makes it unusual is this, is that it means the worshiper of Mars or Marduk's servant. Marduk was the chief god of the Babylonians. Matter of fact, Nebuchadnezzar actually saw it as his life mission to build the ancient city of Babylon as a shrine to the Babylonian god Marduk. And Mordecai's name, he is named after Marduk, the Babylonian god. Now, there's a couple of ways that this can go. First of all, it can go this way, that the people of Israel have become so steeped in Babylonian culture that their children's namesake is the Babylonian God. Or it can go this way, that while steeped in Babylonian culture, they are still able to maintain their identity and their faithfulness as the people of God. And our text seems to follow this second line of thought. That no matter what our circumstance or our situation may be, that you and I can still be faithful to God and we can still maintain our faith. Mordecai is also Esther's older cousin and therefore mentor and guardian. And then we come to our petulant king Xerxes. Now according to historical reports, Xerxes was a moody, difficult, cantankerous, impulsive ruler at best. It is 50 years after the great King Cyrus, and this is Cyrus's grandson, Xerxes. To get an idea about this man, Xerxes, let me tell you this story. Xerxes was gathering an army to go to war against a foreign power, and a dad of an only son petitioned him if his son could be exempt from the army by reason of the fact that this was the man's only son. Follow? As Xerxes is marching through toward the battle, they come to the village that this man who made the petition lives in. Xerxes takes the son, literally cuts him in half, puts one side on one side of the road and one side on the other side of the road and marches his army right between the two halves of the son's body. So, when we read in verse 1 later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, this is not some temper tantrum. Xerxes was mean-spirited. 
he also is portrayed as an excessive partier. That he is easily duped by his advisors and that he is weak when it comes to doing what is right and he is impulsive. Now the story of Esther is not just about one queen. The story of Esther is about a pair of queens of great beauty and courage. This leads us to the woman by the name of Queen, title and name Queen Vashi. Now Esther chapter 1 verses 10 to 12 that we didn't read tells us that Xerxes is throwing this massive elaborate banquet party for all of his court. And while he is drunk, he decides that he's going to have Queen Vashti. By the way, women didn't come to this, or the wives didn't come to this banquet. Other women did, but wives didn't. He decides when this drunken stupor that he's going to have Queen Vashti paraded before all of the lords and the people that are the bigwigs in Persia. Now, I'm not trying to be crude or shock anybody. But a lot of commentators suggest that what he really wanted was Vashti to walk in front of all these people, parade in front of these people naked with just her golden crown on her head. Of course, Vashti does not do that and she refuses because she will not submit to her husband's boorish and impulsive ego. And because of that, she is inappropriately dethroned and to Xerxes, what Queen Vashti has done is absolutely disrespectful, but it is not. She is a woman of sense, of dignity, and of grace. And of course, out of that comes what we would today consider to be a questionable practice, and that is a beauty pageant. Miss Universe or Miss Persia, whatever it's called, we don't know. And that brings us to this, to our text, to Adassa. Is that not the most beautiful name, Adassa? Who's also called Esther as Queen Vashti's replacement and to the direction of her older and wiser cousin, Mordecai. And two, what looks like a whole lot of chance and circumstance. So here's the other part of Esther's story. There's a guy. There's always a guy. There's a guy who has risen to power and influence in our petulant king's court named Haman. And he is a villain. He is our villain for our story this morning. Now Esther chapter 3 verses 1 to 2 says that after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman the son of Amadatha, the Agite, that's important, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles and all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai, but Mordecai, but Mordecai would not kneel down and pay honor. Now what we are not told is that our villain, Haman, as an ancient vendetta against 
Israel's nation family. He is an Agite. He is the descendant of Agag, the Agog, the uh, king of the Amor, Amor, Amalekites. And the Amalekites are the sworn enemy of Israel's family nation. That goes all the way back hundreds of years, all the way back to Moses and to Joshua. And the Amalekites are one of the nations that were trying to prevent Israel from coming into the promised land. But this is also about anti-Semitism. That is satanically inspired and personally inspired. And what evolves in our story is an attempted genocide of the Jewish people. Sometimes, sometimes, things are not always what they appear to be on the surface. And this here attempt at genocide is cloaked in personal offense. We're told in Esther 3, verses 5 and 6, that when Haman saw Mordecai would not kneel down and pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And this is our plot. Haman uses his position and his influence to get the king to sign a degree that, by the way, is irrevocable. To have all the Jews throughout the 127 provinces of Persia to be executed on one day. Now, Ezra chapter 3, verse tells us, verse 7 rather, tells us that the date that this horrific event was supposed to take place is on the month of Adar 13 on the Jewish calendar, which is 11 months away. And it says to us that in the 12th month, in the 12th year rather, of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor. That is, the lot was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Now, what I want to draw your attention to is the word poor. The word poor means the casting of the lot, or as we would say today, the roll of the dice. This is where the festival, the Jewish festival, feast of Purim comes from. This is where it's named, why it's named Purim. And Purim celebrates the deliverance of the Jewish people through Esther and Mordecai out of the hands of King Xerxes and ultimately Haman. A few years ago, we were about four years ago, we took a group from Glad Tidings to Israel. And uh, we just happened to be in Israel on the time of the Feast of Purim. By the way, the Feast of Purim for 2020 is on March the 10th, 11th, and 12th. 
So we happen to be in Israel and we happen to go, get the chance to go to Christ the King Church in Israel, in Jerusalem, where Wayne Hilsen is the pastor. And of course, he is preaching on the story of Esther because that's what Jews and Christians do in Israel on Purim is they preach from the book of Esther. And one of the things that they do in the synagogues during Purim is they read through the entire story of Esther, but there's a little addition. Every time the name Haman is mentioned, the crowd, the audience goes, boo, boo, hiss, 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 and they do all that kind of stuff. When the name Mordecai or Esther is mentioned, they go, yes, and they plod and shout and all that. Now, this was actually happening in Christ the King's church, and it was kind of funny. Because Wayne is preaching away, and, and as he's preaching, Pastor Wayne is preaching, and all of a sudden, every time he mentions Haman, the crowd go, boo, boo, and interrupt them. And then when he mentions Esther and Mordecai, yeah, 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 and it's a racket. I'm sitting in the front, and I'm thinking to myself, this is pretty funny. Until I realize that he is in a major amount of discomfort. And he actually says to the congregation, he says, you got to stop doing that. I'm losing my train of thought. But they would not relent. They just gave it all they had. But there's also this. Proverbs says, the lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. Or to put it in our terms, Haman may roll the dice, cast the poor, but God determines how the dice falls. And there's this. Did you know that in the entire book of Esther that God's name is not even mentioned? Not mentioned, not once. But behind the scenes, God's presence guides all that seems to happen by chance and circumstance. And that brings us to the sovereignty of God. For those who love God and are known by God, what may seem like chance and circumstance or even coincidence are not. Did you hear it? For those of us who love God and are known by God, because 2 Corinthians 8.2 says those who love God are known by God. So for those of us who love God and known by God, what may seem like chance and circumstance are not. And if that's not true, then what is said in the New Testament in Romans chapter 8 verse 28 is not accurate. Because it says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now what is not stated in our text? is this, that Esther and Mordecai have stayed behind in Babylon. Cyrus, Xerxes' grandfather, has given the edict and has released Israel's family nation and they can go home to Jerusalem and Judea. They can go to the promised land. They're free to go. Captivity is over. But we know that only about 50,000 Jews actually went to Israel, to Jerusalem. 
The bulk of the Jews stayed in Babylon, and two of those was Esther and Mordecai. Now, do we really think? Do we really think that it was chance and happenstance that caused Esther and Mordecai to stay behind? No. Their staying behind was an act of the sovereignty of God. Now, Esther chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, tells us that Mordecai is sitting outside the wherever the harem thing is, and he hears of a plot, an assassination plot, a conspiracy to execute Xerxes. Well, Mordecai hears this. He tells Esther. Esther tells the king. Mordecai gets the credit, but he doesn't get the recognition. That will come, but just at the right time. Do we think that it was chance and circumstance that Mordecai was in the right place at the right time to hear about this plot? Of course not. It was an act of the sovereignty of God. And do we think it is an act of chance and circumstance, choice, or rather coincidence, (laughs) that while Haman is running around Susa like a spoiled child, our petulant king Xerxes is wakeful. He can't sleep. And he just happens on this sleepless night to read the account of where Mordecai saved his life, saved him from the assassination plot. No. It's an act of the sovereignty of God. You see, God uses who we are and where we are. And do we really think And that it is a chance and a coincidence, a chance of circumstance, that Haman does not know that the new Queen Esther is Jewish. Because that little fact she's kept to herself. Because Mordecai thought it wise that she not that she conceal her identity, her Jewishness, her heritage. And then three months into the king's or Haman's genocidal creed, with nine months to go, Mordecai sends word to Esther. You got to go into the king and you got to tell the king about this plan of Haman's to genocide and to exterminate all of your people. Now, if there ever is a text in the Bible that teaches us when not to speak and when to speak, it's this text. Esther reminds Mordecai, her older and wiser cousin, that it's not quite as simple as going in to ask the king to deal with this situation. Esther chapter 4 verse 11 tells us that 
The queen was not just allowed to walk into the king's presence anytime she decided she would like to do that. Now, I'm not saying this is good marriage counseling, but I'm saying this is the way it was in Persia, in Babylon, in the time of Esther, of Adassa. If she goes in uninvited and she is rejected, the king doesn't extend the scepter to her, one of two things is going to happen. At best, she's going to be dethroned, or at worst, she's going to be executed. Now, I think there isn't a person in the room or online that can't appreciate the fact that Esther is a little reluctant. I think we get that, right? And that brings us to the most famous words in the entire book of Esther. And I read them to you from Esther chapter 4, verses 12 to 14. And when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. God is never without resources. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And there it is. The famous words. For such a time as this. All these happenings and events may look like coincidence and chance and circumstance, but they are not. What Mordecai, or rather God through him, is saying to Esther is this. You have not come to this place of immense influence by coincidence, accident, or coincidence, but by the sovereignty of God. Let me read it again. You have not come to this place of immense influence by accident or coincidence, but by the sovereignty of God. Wait for it. And neither of you. Neither have I. Neither have we. Come to the place that God has given us and placed us. A coincidence. Who we are and where we are is not a coincidence. Could it be? Could it be that God has placed Esther in advance of this for this very purpose? And could it be that God has placed you and I and us and me and we in advance where we are for his purposes? Imagine, imagine if you and I really believed this. 
Imagine what it would be if you really believed this, if I really believed this, if we really believed that who we are and where we are is not a happenstance, a coincidence, or chance, or circumstance. That it's actually an act of the sovereignty of God. Imagine if we believe that. Imagine if I, you, we, believe that who we are married to was God's plan and purpose. Would it not change how we view our spouse and marriage? If we actually believed as a single adult that our singleness was for the purposes of God and not just chance, but an act of God's sovereignty, would it not change our outlook on what and how we should live and invest our lives? Imagine. Imagine if we believed that I believe, that you believe that about the same thing about our family, that the family that we were born into was not a chance or a happenstance or a coincidence, but an act of the sovereignty of God, would it not change the way we look at our parents and our siblings and our children? And imagine if we believed, if I believed, if you believed that where we live in this city was for God's purposes and not a happenstance or a chance. But an act of his sovereignty. Imagine if I believed, you believed, we believed that where we go to work, where we go to school, was not a happenstance or chance, or coincidence, or circumstance. Not a roll of the dice, but an act of the sovereignty of our God. But we can't stop there, can we? Imagine if I, if you, if we, believe that even the not so pleasant and desirable happenings in our lives was for God's purposes and not chance and not happenstance. Got a call last night from a dear friends of ours in Barrie. Went to Highway when we pastored there. And Paul and Shana, Paul is probably 45. Shana's around 40. I don't think she'd want me to tell you that. Um, they adopted these two gorgeous kids from South Africa. Got a call last night from Paul around 9.30. Shana was already on the airplane heading to Newfoundland. Her dad, 67 years old, his heart stopped. And he died instantly. Imagine if we believed that that not-so-pleasant situation, desirable happening, was not just a coincidence, but an act of God's sovereignty. Would it not change us? Name our fears. 
illness, aging, not enough money, loss of job, loss of home, family breakdown, being alone, wayward children, depression, death, whatever. If Esther's story teaches us anything, it teaches us this. Then in all things, God is behind the scenes working all things out for our good and for his purposes. I believe this. I believe it for my life. You know, I know this. I hope she's not watching. But I was talking to a family in our church today. And they're a little heartbroken. They're a little concerned about their news. They're thinking maybe that their child may be Down syndrome in the womb. Well, I know that. Ruth and I know that because we have a Down syndrome daughter. But I can tell you, the fact that Sarah's in our lives is not a chance, it's not a happenstance, it's not a coincidence. It's an act of the sovereignty of God. And I think if you talk to Ruth and talk to me, talk to Scott, talk to Josh, if we could change it, I wouldn't. Because too many good things has transpired in our lives. Because all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purposes. And I can tell you for every single one of us in this room and every single one of us that are watching online, this is the truth. This is the truth.